Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at the most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. What does resilience really mean in the face of a cyber attack? Firms have invested significant sums over the years in building up their defences. But now attention is turning to what happens after an attack and how quickly the business can recover. Recovery and resilience is about more than just IT security, and it really is now a board-level issue, as our guest this episode explains. Elizabeth Green is European Advisory and Cyber Leader at Dell Technologies. Her background is in data and data protection, joining Dell when it acquired storage vendor EMC, so she has a deep understanding of both the need to protect data as well as the need to link data protection and recovery. At the same time, she's an advocate for greater diversity in cybersecurity and in the wider tech industry. Without diversity, she argues, organizations will always be more vulnerable than they should be. But first, I asked her to set out why Dell Technologies, best known after all as a hardware vendor, has been building up its own organic cyber capabilities. Dell Technologies has been on a journey over the last several years. I actually came from the merger with EMC, which I don't think it still is, but was at the time one of the largest tech mergers in history. Um, EMC being predominantly a storage company, data storage company. Um, I think that the journey we've been on is is one, the world is digitized at pace. Dell Technologies has moved from just being a laptop provider to really being um, a, a data center provider, a hybrid cloud provider, um, and working from edge to core to cloud to support organizations with any and all digital um, technologies or strategies. Um, I think what we're finding is because data is everywhere, it's at the edge um, and on our devices and at home and in our cities, we need to make sure we're safeguarding that data. And so kind of the storage part of that business is really where we've been growing in terms of helping organizations protect data wherever it lives, um, our collaboration with the cloud providers. So with Azure, AWS, and GCP is quite strong in terms of helping organizations make sure uh, data is protected, the integrity of, da- of data is upheld, um, and then particularly around recovery, using uh, infrastructure solutions to help organizations recover key services in the event of catastrophic cyber attacks. So we've evolved with the market. I think we've also involved, evolved in front of the market, <clears throat> uh, and security has always been part of everything that we do. Absolutely. So it's interesting, isn't it? Because when we before we start looking at threat landscapes, and we will, if we look at how organizations react to security problems and how those cyber attacks actually impact them, a lot of the problems actually occur more around the recovery phase and bringing the business back up to operational speed rather than necessarily in the defense. So the industry tends to focus a lot on the perimeter still and on threat detection and SOCs and SEAMs and all those other acronyms. But actually, if you talk to a CIO rather than perhaps a CISO, you get quite a different picture about what the actual risk to the business is. So do you think, given the background of where you work and the work that you've done prior, do you think that we give enough attention to recovery from a cyber attack or indeed another incident that may affect the integrity of your data and the systems that run because it's not necessarily just a malicious attack that could pose the risk here. Yeah, I mean, I think 
I, I don't think people focus enough on recovery. I think that gets neglected. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think um, that's changing. And I, there's a, a greater acceptance. You mentioned CIOs. I think CISOs, the business, the board understands now that there needs to be a strategy in place to help recover the business. And it's no longer acceptable to say, we've invested XYZ million and we are going to prevent every single attack from happening because we just know that's not the case. We've seen organizations big and small, no matter what they invest or how robust their team impacted. We've seen you know, some of the largest private sector clients. We've seen large government agencies impacted. So we understand that this is really an if not a when. Um, and did I say that right? I always say that one. It's a when, not an if. <laughs> um, and that they need to have a plan. I think there's still there's a lot of reasons why that isn't um isn't always focused on in the way it should be i think there there are things like ego that come into play so people that own and manage these infrastructures or own and manage these um security investments um don't like to have to think about you know all of the things they've done really well not working <laughs> um and that you know that is a, a conversation that requires a business leader to help say you know we, we need to invest appropriately. And, and that's not to say you haven't done the right things, but you still need a plan to recover, assuming that they get through every single layer that we've put forward. Um, so I think there's ego that comes into play. The cybersecurity market is saturated with, uh, you know, headlines about what technology will solve your problem, what single solution will solve your problem. And I think you and I both know, Stephen, it's not a, a single technology you buy to be resilient. It's a it's a constant. You're going to constantly be adding process and people and technology to get that right um, approach uh, to build resilience and recover. So it's a long-winded way of answering your question. <laughs> the when, not if is very important, but I'm wondering... Is this a gradual change in understanding? I don't see, I may have missed it, but I don't see a single light bulb moment where CISOs and CIOs are saying, okay, we now need to accept that we will be breached and we will move towards a form of protecting assets and remediation recovery more that it's a realization over time that that's actually what firms do that have been attacked. And there's been some good work done. So I'll call out one in particular, which is Maersk, who have been very open about how they recovered from the large ransomware attack they suffered a couple of years ago. I think that has actually been quite helpful to others in the industry to say, actually, to their boards, we need to put a recovery plan in and we need to test it. And it's not just conventional disaster recovery, so flood, fire, etc., but also cyber incidents. But does that chime with how you're seeing it with the customers and the operators that you talk to? I think not Petro was a big moment for the world, which is what you're referring to with Maersk. Um, but, you know, we had several other incidents after that. You could talk about solar winds, JBS, um, the Irish Health organization um now what we're seeing geopolitically um i think there are different different mechanisms that move people to invest um and, and focus on recovery i think there, there's more so um a, a, just a change in the threat actors and activity that's really driving that which is you know we're actually seeing a change from ransomware being the driver to really data destruction and wiperware um, there's a lot more wiper programs that aren't actually even giving clients or sorry, giving uh, firms the option to pay 
a ransom, but now, you know, just deleting and destroying your data. So that puts organizations at a, a real clear need to have a capability to recover because, you know, even if they felt like they were going to maybe pay the ransom, um, which is highly controversial in itself, if you don't have that option, you know, that's a really big problem. So I think that that is also driving behavior, um, the change in threat activity. When did we start to see that happening? When did we start to see that shift? Because that's very interesting and rather worrying. Yeah, more recently. So, I mean, data destruction attacks have, have been around for a long time. So if you look at Sony pictures, that was really what Sony was. There was no ransomware. Um, but it was destroying data, deleting data with the goal of business destruction. So not being able to keep services available. Um, and, and so it's been around since, but then ransomware was so lucrative and it still is so lucrative. I think there's a stat that says it's more profitable than the illegal drug trade. So, you know, cyber criminals are making hand over fist by, you know, locking people out of systems and, um, that really became a business. But I think geopolitically, more recently, um, there's been a lot more nation state alignment. And um, because of that, there's a, a shift towards just destroying data with the goal of, of business destruction or limiting services and capabilities from running. And are we seeing that being driven primarily by nation state actors or affiliated actors? Yes. We, yeah. The ransomware groups are looking for a cash payout in some description, whereas data destruction doesn't necessarily get you that. Exactly. Yeah, that would be more nation state affiliated. Yeah. How big a risk is that at the moment? It, it's, a, it's a really big risk. And I think the world stage right now is is at a position of kind of waiting for the next shoe to drop. I think we expect we expect things to get worse before they get better. And um, that's why I feel like recovery is kind of coming to the forefront in the way it hasn't before. Um, you know, we're seeing regulation really putting forward this need to have a minimal viable version of your business identified, protected off the network and recoverable. So we're seeing regulations pop up everywhere, recommendations pop up everywhere that say, what is your plan to recover? And that's coming from the US with Sheltered Harbor, uh, in the UK with Seymour, the cross-market operational resilience group, Dora in Europe, Singapore Certain, Singapore Hong Kong Monetary Authority, those are financial services. But then the TSA regulation and telcos, NIS2 for critical national infrastructure, um, you know, Biden administration has come out. So I think we actually, for the first time, are seeing consistency and that consistent message is you need to have the capability to recover in the event that you you know, have all of your data destroyed or impacted. Where is a, a third copy of that being stored? How is it being safeguarded? And what's the plan to recover it? How many businesses would you say don't do that at the moment? So what proportion of organizations are neglecting to put in place proper measures? I mean, I, I can only say this because of, you know, the exposure I have, and I don't, I can't, profess to have exposure to a, a wide net. I work with large enterprises in Europe. Um, but, you know, I think financial services, a lot of the large globally systemically important banks have deployed some of these capabilities. It's the other sectors that I think are lagging and quite far behind. And again, that's just from the conversations I've had in my exposure. Um, but I think that we need critical national infrastructure to get up to the same level as financial services. Uh, 
so that in the event of a catastrophic attack, we can still turn on the taps and turn on the heat and, um, you know, have access to those essential services. I think, you know, retail and, you know, any form of, of service that runs digitally or has a, some sort of digital infrastructure um, that isn't financial services is, is lagging behind because they historically haven't haven't invested in in cyber in the same way financial services has been required to. That's a very, very valid point, isn't it? It's a requirement in financial services. It's something that is generally done in government anyway, but other sectors that are not forced to do it perhaps haven't invested. So clearly there's a cost involved in that and everybody currently is scrutinizing cost. So how does a CISO or CIO justify that to the stakeholders, to the board? I mean, clearly there is this insurance policy that if you don't do it, it could be catastrophic to the business. But it's always hard to persuade people to take out insurance or make an investment on a it might happen basis. Yeah, it's it's a really big question and comes up a lot is how do we justify investment? Um, I think there are a few things that come to mind. I think, firstly, the board and the business is typically very interested in investing in these these capabilities particularly around recovery where we see it kind of the message getting lost is when it goes into the hands of the CISO or the you know IT or security teams um who think they know best or you know choose to invest it in different ways so i think the only way i've really seen organizations be successful is having a chief operating officer who takes ownership of this recovery piece and really make sure there's a team and an approach that he or she agrees with um, in terms of where the money's going and what it's going to deliver. Because I think there's so many security tooling technologies today that really aren't helping us with this big piece of recovery. They're helping us to identify risks, find bad actors, and that's great. But if we're looking at this new threat landscape of a zero-day vulnerability or one bad actor or one you know person who is on the network from a third party and you know how we're going to be mitigating against that risk and the likelihood of those being higher than some of the other threats we were talking about, um, recovery is critical. So I think it's making sure the funds are getting to recovery and not going into other parts of the wider security piece. I think it's also looking at what is the cost of my business if I cannot run, uh, which for any organization, big and small, adds up on the day-to-day. And I think the average, you know, using ransomware, the average downtime associated with ransomware is 30 days to recover. So very quickly, that business case becomes, you know, in the in the thousands, millions of lost revenue. Um, that's not including brand damage or any... Um, impacts that you might have from regulators or the government if you can't keep systems or services available. So I think it's having that wider lens, making sure money is being put into the right pockets, into the right hands, and you know that the board is really involved in the decisions that are being made, even if they're technology decisions, and, and what that outcome will look like. It has tended to be siloed, but not necessarily deliberately so. Uh, a lot of this just probably stems from the fact that the two disciplines arose in or grew in different ways. So you have the security people essentially dealing with endpoints and perimeters, and then you've got the business continuity people who are dealing with operations. And is operations where you think this should now sit? Um, Yes, I guess I do, because I do in the sense of chief operating officer, because 
the role of a chief operating officer is to make sure the business operates. And if we have a data destruction attack preventing the business from operating, it's going to be their responsibility to figure out how to operate it. So, you know, developing a resilience strategy, developing a recovery plan for the business in the event of any dis- any disruption um, is part of their role. So I think it does need to sit there, but I do think it's it's a team sport. So I think security is now a part of everyone's job. In HR, it's a part of your job uh, because you're, you know, holding data around, you know, the the people in the organization, and you know that that data needs to be safeguarded. And just because a head of HR is invested in a, you know, let's say a SaaS platform, that that doesn't mean the SaaS platform is responsible for safeguarding that data. It's the head of HR that needs to be responsible. So I guess what I'm saying is it, it's really multidisciplinary teams now in security. And I think the business model needs to shift to adopt in that way and have the business and board more aware of investments, aware of safeguards, and you know have people accountable at all levels for this. Do you think we've perhaps actually lost some of the points that we learned during the last couple of years when we were forced to all this remote working and contingencies having to quickly switch systems around to allow people to work from home and to deal with disruptions to supply chains as a result of the pandemic you know it it feels where we're sitting right now at the end of 2022 it feels quite a long time ago uh april may 2020 but it's actually not it's actually not is it It was such an interesting time. It was an interesting time in uh, the digital transformation of the businesses across the globe, you know, systems and services we would have never dreamed of operating from home, being available, you know, uh, and services that you and I probably use today uh, on our phones that we would never have have had access to before virtually. So I think it it was a great opportunity for the world. Obviously, with the digitization that came, more risk came with it. I think I, I feel like there has been positive growth and change around risk and cyber cybersecurity, and more of a spotlight on, um, yeah, on the different exposure points that businesses have. Um, but I, I think that the worry I have is I think during the pandemic it felt like everyone got a get a get out of jail free card around cybersecurity. You know, yes, your uh, investment banking organization and you now need to operate from home. We never allowed that before, but we will allow that now. You just have to make sure you're doing it in a way that's that's safe or secure, but not defining what that looks like. Um, and this is for lots of different firms. And I worry that, you know, they've kind of continued to um, go down that path and not take in the right approaches or safeguards with the grace period now being over, I think organizations have a lot of work to to still do to make sure their systems are secure because hybrid working is, is here to stay. And I, I don't know how, you know, how secure it is, honestly. So whether the rigor that was applied to some of these decisions before and then necessarily was set to one side, is that coming back? We have to put that in the current context. So we've got two contextual issues that are top of mind at the moment, I think, which is 
One is the geopolitical risk, which we've touched on already, and we can come back to. The other is the financial and economic situation, which is you know, very much interlinked to the former. But we do seem to have unfortunately bounced from the time of the pandemic to a time of global conflict and economic difficulties. That must put a lot of stress on businesses in terms of their investment plans, their budgets. But we've also got the related issue of the supply chain. So it's all very well talking about building resilient systems. But if you can't acquire the components that you need to do that, the physical hardware or the cloud computing space, then you're going to struggle. So let's look at the geopolitical question first and then the economic one. And if we have time, we can look at the question of of, uh, supply. But do you see this as a time-limited period of pressure or do you think we're seeing a shift which is going to be more more durable where perhaps organisations are going to have to look more carefully at budgets and also look more carefully at their resilience going forward? I think they're always going to be having to look at budgets and always going to have to be building greater cyber resilience. Um, we're not we're not getting uh, any less digital. We're only seeing digitization increase. So I, what I do think is is coming from this is is a lot more clarity around what security looks like. Um, a lot of security being built in from the beginning, which is is so important. I had someone once explain to me that, you know, security in the internet is kind of like a slinky. We built the internet and then we thought about security later <laughs> and we've always been one step behind. And that's a problem, you know, that, that makes it really hard to catch up. What I think we're seeing now is zero trust technologies and this idea of embedding security from the beginning. Now we know that's not going to prevent everything from happening um, and there's still risk, but I think having much more of a dialogue around what could looks like from the beginning is important um, and, and hopefully will make this easier. Um, I think, uh, yeah, the, this isn't gonna go away, um, but as mentioned, like the regulators are all really clear and, and actually quite aligned in their message and none of them are you know, working, or I'm sure they're speaking to each other uh, at some levels, but there's separate documents that are saying a lot of the same things. And I find that to be really encouraging and give me a breath of fresh air to say, okay, there's consistency coming on the global stage of, of how to be secure in this world, which I think was just not something that was that well known or that widely shared before. And are we likely to be impacted by supply chain problems for a longer period? Because clearly that was one of the hangovers from the pandemic and particularly with manufacturing in Asia and China specifically, uh, which was hit by both illness and uh, various shutdowns. Are we seeing any recovery for that? And there's uh, the the much heralded chip shortage as well. Yeah, I mean, I think like like anything and, and as business works, you know, people are figuring out how to balance their risk. Um, assuming they might not be able to get components from their standard locations, diversifying who they contract with, vendors, geographies. So I think business is is savvy, technology is savvy, innovation is savvy as well. So we're going to see more software-defined solutions that allow us to not have to be so reliant on a specific set of physical parts or even being able to potentially repurpose 
technologies we have sitting in data centers with smart technologies on top of it. So um, I'm, sh- I'm sure I'm, I won't profess to be an expert in supply chains um, or someone who can see into the future, um, but I- I'm sure that won't go away. But I think we will get smarter about how we deal with that risk. So in terms of the resiliency and the ability of organizations to recover, part of that is actually making better use of the assets that you already have. Yeah. And obviously there are limitations with that. It depends on how old the technology is, but we always at at Dell like to try and help organizations do more with less to use or repurpose technologies they have if, if it's viable um, and upgrade or use our software to help, um, you know, kind of create solutions without having to, you know, continue to invest in additional capabilities or technologies. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And that has to be beneficial from a cost and an environmental impact point of view as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Depends on the technology because, you know, older technologies sometimes aren't as economically friendly than others. So it might actually make sense sometimes to uh, invest in, in newer capabilities that have a better power and cooling profile. But yeah, with, with, you know, most things, if you can repurpose, there's benefit. But certainly it's worth taking stock of the assets that you have and potentially if you are struggling to resource some of these improvements that are needed, that's a good place to start. Yeah, know what you have. Exactly. Yeah. So that brings us on to the last point that I want to cover in this conversation today, but it's really the question of skills. And I think that's the other asset that we haven't yet touched on. And all these things that we've discussed, they require skilled personnel. They require skilled personnel in the business and they require skilled personnel in the suppliers, whether that's uh, hardware, cloud, uh, and the various advisors that they might use in the security space. Uh, We still are struggling in cybersecurity to get the right number of people applying, people with the right aptitude, not necessarily the right qualifications. I make that distinction quite deliberately. Uh, I know you've done some work around diversity and uh, championing more female professionals to go into this sector. How is that going? And do you think that is likely to still be important as we go into the next year? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's really important. Right now, ISC2 just did a cyber workforce study. You might That might have been what you are speaking to them about at some stage, but there's still only 24% um, of the cyber workforce that are women. Which is dreadful. That's a, that's a huge gap. I mean, not only is it a gap, um, you know, because I don't like to see that number, but I think the bigger gap in the risk is, is you know, these cyber criminals are not all men. <laughs> so, you know, to be as, as robust as possible, we need diverse people that are building solutions um, and that means we need many more women entering entering the space. I think the reason that has historically been so is there's not enough women at senior levels um, that are building cyber strategy and bringing more women along to or showing women that this is a both a female and a male role um, and and a really great career for for all people to consider. Um, I think the perception of cybersecurity is changing slowly. I think. For a lot of people, they still think of cybersecurity as kind of being in a dark room, wearing a hoodie, working odd hours, sitting behind a computer screen, not talking to people. And I think, um, you know, there's probably a big, still big need for technical skills in cyber. But the bigger need I see is business leaders who understand the risks, understand the technology enough to explain it, get investment and progress a 
um, to a business outcome that helps them reduce risk and build resilience. And I think that is a, a role that requires, you know, leadership, management skills, strong communication skills, um, you know, being able to troubleshoot or think through high pressure situations. So, you know, I do hope that we start to have more women move up into those roles uh, so that we can bring more women along and, and have just a more diverse group in general supporting all cyber initiatives at organizations. So if we go back to right where we started in this conversation, would having a more diverse workforce make the organization more resilient? Absolutely. I mean, it, it's like any any problem. The more different views, perspectives, um, and and ideas that we have behind a problem, uh, the more considered our response will be to that problem. Um, and so, I think cyber risk is going to continue to be a, a challenge. We're going to continue to face, um, you know, lots of different vectors and actors. Uh, that are going to be challenging to our businesses, but we need to have an informed group of people to helping mitigate against that. And that needs to be diverse. Absolutely. Elizabeth Green from Dell Technologies on how the lack of diversity in cybersecurity and its workforce contributes directly to an increase in risk and how role models and changing perceptions are just some of the ways industry can address that. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. We'll be back in two weeks' time when we'll be looking at GPT-3 and ChatGPT and what they could mean for cybersecurity. I hope you can join us then. Until then, of course, you can catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, and on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.